0: Let me ask the rest of you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter number 5. Last Sunday morning we returned to our study of Genesis. In that sermon we came to a portion of the text that contrasted two lines that descended from Adam and Eve after the death of Abel, after the murder of Abel. We had the line of Cain. The line of Seth talked about at the end of chapter 4. We wrestle with a, a great divide that has been found in humanity ever since the fall and has continued all the way down to today. And that divide was described this way. We talked about those who live independent of God and those who live dependent on God. So the independent and the dependent. As Walvard and Zook described it, we saw this last week, our text painted a picture of an affluent society defying God and His laws, seeking pleasure and self-indulgence. Those who went after life, they took hold of it with both hands, but they believed, it seems from the text, they were making the life that they could make for themselves. In fact, all of this was on a trajectory away from God as the passage began by telling us that Cain left the presence of the Lord. They put God in the rearview mirror and seemed to never look back. But we also talked about the fact that, friends, we don't mean then that God's faithful people don't live. We do. We work and we live and we interact and we do all the things that anybody else does, but the faithful people of God do so dependent on Him. We work as unto the Lord and not unto men. We do what we've been given to do. We live the life we've been given to live dependent on God and for His glory. Today we turn the page and we begin our study of the next section of the book of Genesis. And and hopefully you remember that this book is broken down by Moses into 11 different sections. We talked about this at the beginning of our study here. Just remember how it works as you think about this. We have the prologue in chapters 1 and 2. And then the history of heaven and earth in chapters 2 through 4. And then the family history of Adam and the family history of Noah and the family history of Noah's sons and the family history of Shem and the family history of Terah and so on. This continues through the book of Genesis. This is a, is a book that's intended to communicate some things as it re- records a line of people. It tells the story of a, of a family and each of the sections, from the, except for the prologue, is set off with a version of the same phrase. We told you this before. It, it's something to the effect of, these are the generations of. And when you find that phrase, you know you're coming to the next section of the story Moses is telling. We saw in chapter 2, verse 4, the language, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When we, came to, we come now to chapter 5 and verse 1, we read this, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. We'll get to chapter 6 and verse 9 and read, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and we find this pattern continuing through the book. Ten of the eleven sections are set off with this phrase or a version of it. Now friends, a couple of weeks back, we spent some time wrestling with the implications of the promise God made in Genesis 3 and verse 15. Please remember that. God promised as he cursed the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in that sermon, I actually... Uh, mentioned to you we know the fact that the promise of an offspring or a seed a descendant would would necessitate that we trace God's grace his word his promise through the the lines that would descend from Adam and Eve after the fall where's this promised one going to be found Last week's contrast of the God forsaking line of Cain as we saw it and the God pursuing line of Seth highlighted this same idea that the line becomes important. You see, we can't afford to forget the fact, friends, that the book of Genesis is a collection of historical records compiled for the purpose of communicating theological truth to the reader. We're not just reading stories. We're actually reading a history that's intended to communicate theology to us. In fact, in the introductory sermon of this entire series, we said it this way. Genesis is the record of how God created, commanded, corrected, chose, consecrated, covenanted with, and commissioned a people. A people through whom He would send the Savior into the world and by whom He would send that good news of salvation to the nations. We're studying the people, the line. Now for the sake of time this morning, as we come to chapter five, we're not going to read the whole chapter. But I want us to understand that as we come to this chapter, all of this that we've been talking about starts to come into clearer focus. It's almost like maybe we've been looking through a lens that's a little bit uh, unclear, and we're going to turn the lens a little bit and watch it clear up, come into clearer focus when we talk about the lines. Because chapter 5, from start to finish, is a record of the family line of that chosen people from Adam through Seth to Noah. That's the line that we read about in chapter 5. They said we won't read the whole chapter. I do want to read about half of it just to let you see the pattern as we read. We need to hear some of this and we need to see it on the page. So Genesis chapter 5, I'm going to begin at verse 1. Let me read down through verse 17. And we're just going to see here what we find and how it's laid out in the chapter. We read this. This is the book of the generations of Adam when, he was crea- when God created man He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Seth, uh, of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahaliel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahaliel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years. And he died. This continues. There's a slight variation in a couple of places, but this is the pattern of the chapter. And as we noted last time, many read a text like this one and what they see simply is a genealogy. It's, it's someone was born, had kids, lived and died. Someone was born, had kids, lived and died. Someone was born, had kids, lived and died. We see this genealogy. It seems to be a record of lives lived. But friends, I believe that there's more to glean here. So what I want to do this morning is spend our time considering a couple of big ideas before we go to the supper. We're not going to take a lot of time because we want to have time for the Lord's Supper this morning. But I think to prepare our hearts for the supper, it's worth considering what we find in this chapter. Two big ideas I want you to consider with me are these. First of all, I want you to see the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin. And secondly, I want you to see God's grace to the undeserving. God's grace to the undeserving. So let's go ahead and dive right in and consider then the consequence of sin. There's so much that we could say about this chapter, but I, I want to begin just by pointing at the unmistakable pattern that stands out, what really marks out this chapter, even to commentators as they, they note what's here. Look back again at the first five verses. What do we find? they the story of Adam, kind of in in nutshell. And we're told that he was made in the image of God, and that he fathered a son in his image, kind of we see this, this pattern there. But then what's interesting is that we read at the end of this, he had sons and daughters, but what happened to Adam? He died. The rest of the chapters continues the same way. Verse 8, Seth died. Verse 11, Enosh died. Verse 14, Kenan died. Verse 17, Mahaliel died. Verse 20, Jared died. Verse 27, Methuselah died. Verse 31, Lamech died. As the pattern is so pronounced that one commentator wrote this about this passage, the predominant theme of the chapter is death. So you think this is the story of lives. This is the record of death. God kept His Word. Don't forget that back in chapter 2, God had promised that if Adam and Eve sinned, they would die. Verses 16 and 17 were plain. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now friends, we need to remember the fact, if we're going to think about sin and its consequence, that sin defined most basically is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. John, when defining sin in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, simply said it this way, sin is lawlessness. Your Creator gives you a law, He gives you a commandment, and you say no. I won't do what God commands. I'll do what I do. Please, I'll do what I want. I'll do what I wish. I'll do what I dream. I'll do what I long for. Not what he says. That's sin. Rebellion against the authority of our maker. In other words, we could say it this way. Sin is choosing to go my own way and do my own thing rather than submit to the authority and command of my creator. In essence, that is what sin is. And what did God say? In the day you tell me no, you'll die. the New Testament, the Apostle Paul summarized all of that truth theologically simply this way. The wages of sin is death. As we've noted before, on the day that Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from their God and from the source that would have kept giving them life. So we know that they died spiritually on the day that they sinned. God said, lest they reach out and With their hand, take of the tree of life and live forever. I'm going to send them out of the garden. And he put a cherubim there with a flaming sword, turning every way to guard them uh, the way to the tree of life. No, you're not going to come and live forever. I told you you're going to die. And what's interesting about our text for this morning is that not only was there a, a spiritual death, but physical death was one of the consequences of sin as well. Eventually, Adam... Died physically as well. Acknowledging the so sobering reality of death, Job once said quite simply about life this man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. You know, when we're having to wait for something, Life can seem unbearably long, but you blink, and it's over. Friends, hear me. Why do we learn from a record like chapter 5 of Genesis? We are reminded of the fact that human beings are sinners. And our sin has serious, sobering consequences. Friends, more than reminding us of the consequence of sin, I think our record in Genesis 5 does something else. As I said, we see the consequence of sin, but I want you to see secondly this morning this, God's grace to the undeserving. You know, after a study like we engaged in last week, I think it's important for us to acknowledge a danger that can emerge from that kind of thing. I mentioned to you earlier, and hopefully you remember, we, rem- we, we, we studied last time, the striking contrast between those who live independent of God and those who live dependent on God. Th- this is an important divide for us to understand. We see it in Scripture. We need to recognize it in, in, in life and in the culture. We need to wrestle with it in our own lives as we did last week. But friends, hear me. This kind of thinking can also create an us versus them way of thinking in self-righteous people. In other words, if we're not careful to preach truth to and about ourselves, we run the risk of thinking of ourselves as the good guys and everybody else as the bad ones. We're the heroes. They're the villains. Is that not the essence of the danger of sin Pastor Dave reminded us of this morning when it comes to anger? We always think our anger is righteous, right? It's it's always justifiable. Why? Because I'm right and they're wrong. They messed up my life. Us versus them is always a problem among the self-righteous. We think we're better than we are. And I would argue that we need to apply this kind of thinking to the study of Genesis that we're in. Just think about it for a minute. If we're not careful, we we can begin to think, based on what we studied last week, that that Cain's family, all of them, were the bad ones, right? And we think of Seth's line, all of them, as the, the good ones. And yes, in general terms, we saw in the text last time there was a line that was charted away from God, and there was a line that started calling upon the name of the Lord. That's great. There were those among them who did, but guess what? Lines are made up of individuals. Just like your family and mine. Just like our church and our town, and our state and country and world. And while there may be general truths that apply to a people at large, that people at large is made up of individual people. And our text for today reminds us of that fact because it starts naming them. This was his name, and this was his son. And he had other children, and this is how long he lived, and guess what? He died. It Starts to put faces, as it were, before us. In fact, while we may begin to think, if we're not careful, at the end of chapter 4, that all of Cain's line were bad and all of Seth's line were, were good, we need to understand that this passage in chapter 5 reminds us that they all were just like we all are sinners. Sinners. In other, well, in other words, they all deserved God's just and righteous wrath. You see, that Reality is why the text keeps telling us they died. They died. And that reality is what makes God's grace stands out as brilliant and as glorious as it does in this text. Let's just be honest about the fact that as you read a text like this one, as hard as it is to hear of death after death after death, death, God's grace is all over this passage. From its description of how God made Adam in his own image and gave him a son in his likeness, to the fact that God did not only bless Adam, but each fallen and faltering generation he blessed with children. The Bible tells us elsewhere, children are a gift from the Lord. God gave them children. God blessed these sinners with long lives. Eight and nine hundred years, some of them. text tells us he even, he even walked closely and personally with some of them. We, we find this in, in a couple of places in our text. Chapter 5, verse 21, we read of Enoch. And what does it say? When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. He didn't just live. He walked with God. Now, I, I don't know how you, how you find your mind racing when you come to a statement like this. But when I read through and it just says, he lived and he died, he lived and he died, he lived and he died, and then suddenly there's one that says, he walked with God. My mind starts to say, why does it only say this about him? Because we've already been tempted to think they're all the good ones, right? But what does it say? Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not for God. God took him. Notice he didn't die. It's translated. The writer of Hebrews was actually inspired to take up Enoch's story in his New Testament sermon written down in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And what's the application to the New Testament reader? And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Wow. This is an amazing thought, friends. Fallen sinners can, in fact, please the Creator, God. It's possible. And in the end, we do so by faith that submits to Him as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. Oh, we wish! I wish we knew more of the stories of these other family members. I wish we knew more about Enoch's story. But we know enough To know that God graciously worked in Enoch's life in such a way that Enoch believed what he was told about God. And he sought to know him and respond rightly to him and not just live but walk with God. We say some are independent of and some are dependent on. We're talking about dependence that actually walks with God, not just has His name on some pictures on the walls in our house. Or has His books stacked up on our coffee tables and bookshelves. Or happen to sit in His room once a week or twice a week. The way we tend to think, you know, what makes us God's people is the, is the people we hang out with and the room we sit in and the book we carry. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If what we are doing is not driven by what we are believing, it is not pleasing to our maker so we read of the language of this and what do we hear this is the language of grace not only did Enoch walk with God the text tells us in chapter 6 of Genesis that Noah walked with God God walked with, closely and personally, some of His own. He gave them children. He gave them long lives. But here's what's fascinating to me. We know from the story of Noah that God chose to pour out His special grace, especially on some of them. What's interesting is this. We've just read about in chapter 4 Cain's line, and we've read about Seth's line. And then we come to chapter 6. And God inspires Moses to describe all of them. And here's how he describes them. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made the line of Cain. No, I'm sorry I made any of them. Now, you tell me how Seth's line is more worthy of God's kindness than Cain's. This isn't about worthiness, this is about grace, unmerited kindness. Because in the very next verse we read, but Noah found favor. It does not say, now Noah was found meriting. Now Noah was found good enough. Noah found grace, favor. In the eyes of the Lord. This is amazing. The New Testament is absolutely clear that grace means unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, and the Old Testament concept is not much different here in this portion of the Old Testament. The, the, the concept is similar You see, the word favor or grace means kindness, and and the term is a subjective one. It it means this, that the kindness or the favor is completely dependent upon the subjective decision of the giver of the kindness, the giver of the grace. It's not kindness that was merited, it's kindness that wasn't. It's it's kindness that is given at the the choice of the giver. See, here's the problem. Some of us have gotten over grace. Grace. We were sinners and now we're good enough. Because we came to church this morning. <laughs> and we came early, right? Nine o'clock is our service, right? We, 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 we rose early. I mean, that, that's got to be good for some brownie points. And, and, and maybe I talked to somebody about Jesus this week. M- maybe I gave a little more money in the offering. Maybe I dressed up today right? I was a sinner, now I'm good enough, so what God gives me is actually what I merit. No, this isn't about deserving kindness. You see, while Noah may have been, the text tells us, righteous and blameless in his generation, Hear me, friends. He, in whatever amounted to better than the rest of them, no more deserved the grace of God than the vilest sinner in his day. Any more than you deserve it over your neighbor. Grace is just that. It's grace. So, we need to ask a question. What is this teaching us about our God? Because at the end of the day, we read texts like these and we think that chapter 5 is about Adam, it's about Enosh, it's about Mahaliel, it's about Enoch, it's about Methuselah. Friends, hear me. Chapter 5 is about God. You see, our God is a God of loving kindness, a God of care, a God of favor, who bestows His amazing grace on whomever He will, not because they are deserving, but because of His care, His kindness, His mercy, His grace, His character. Oh, my friends. This is comforting when you think about it because you and I can come on a morning like this thinking we had a pretty good week. Therefore, we deserve His blessing on a day like today. Can we remember something? Paul said this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here's what concerns me about what creeps into the fallen heart that's in so many who would say we're dependent upon Christ Jesus and yet we kind of come to think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> we need it, Grace! Now God, just give me your blessing because I'm, I'm on your team now. Like I, I'm, I'm doing well. I mean, y- you should be happy to have me. We would never be so crass. But here's what concerns me. It's very possible that we're about to come to a table to celebrate something that you don't celebrate much anymore because honestly, grace isn't amazing to you anymore. It doesn't excite you. It doesn't move you because at the end of the day, Sunday morning, we do this and we go on, right? No. Friends, you and I do not deserve the least of the kindnesses of God. And yet, he richly, bountifully, amazingly blesses us with grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. grace, Like the waves of the sea, one on another, on another, on another, on another. Friends, hear me. God did not save Noah from the outpouring of wrath and the flood because Noah was anything special or therefore deserving of it. God saved Noah from his wrath because God is a God of grace and a keeper of his word. What does that mean for us? Friends, God will not save you because you have impressed him with your goodness and are therefore deserving. God will save you because he loves to save and he cares for you and he is a God of grace. So as we said from the beginning of this morning's message, there is far more for us to glean from this passage where we read of death and birth and death and birth, right? This is not just a list of dusty old names in the, in the Old Testament. And It's the very truths that we have wrestled with this morning that are coming out from this way, the story is told by Moses, that really bring us to the table this morning. There's a reason that we proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. We, we celebrate His grace that should still be amazing us. And yet so often, It doesn't. We're more moved by our trials and our troubles. We're more concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow. More fearful of people in this life. Oh, my friends, this morning, I want you to come to the table and I want you to be amazed again by grace. And to that end, let me pray for us. And we'll go to the table. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We read the description of what you said about all of these how you regretted that you had even made man on the earth. And yet, as a keeper of your word and of your promise, and as a gracious God, you, you gave favor. Father, I pray that you would cause us to understand that our grace, the grace that you give to us is ours in Christ, the only one who has merited any good. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would lift our eyes and captivate our hearts and that you would help us to go from here understanding with greater clarity what is true because of Jesus. So may we understand that we are saved not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to your mercy and your grace you save. And Father, may we rejoice in that this morning. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.